Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, we turn this week to immigration, the topic of a recent column that you wrote. And it's interesting, the point that one of the points anyway that you make in this column, there is a, a sense among some people who are fairly sympathetic to illegal immigrants that the act of breaking the law when you come into the country illegally is almost to be considered discreetly and not really sort of breaking the law. I mean there's the famous you know, Jeb Bush line that it's it's an act of love. Basically, people are driven by compassion. This is not uh, representative of some bigger pension for lawlessness. But you note in this piece, especially looking around your community in the Central Valley of California, that that's not always the case. Explain some of the trends that you were describing in that piece. Well, apart for the reasons of why people come here illegally, once they do, once you break a federal law and enter – then other federal and state laws become negotiable. So if I go to the DMV and, and any of these neighboring committee, uh, communities, there are people there that are trying to get driver's license. In other words, they've been driving illegally, and now we've decided they can have a driver's license without being here legally. But when you go into the line and actually interact with people, the first thing that comes up is they have all of these different names and they have prior infractions that they never addressed. Or where I live, there's people who live in, I mean, not shacks, but they're violating every zoning law there is from on, on licensed dogs without rabies shots to Romex wire to uh, restaurants on the side of the road with porta potties in the high, most highly regulated state in the United States. So, and why is that? It's because we have said to a large segment of the population, these rules, whether you're in a sanctuary city or you're just in rural California, don't apply to you and you're going to be exempt. And then we expect them to say, oh, then I won't be exempt from IRS statutes or I won't be exempt from DMV statutes. Only federal? You're only going to give me that, that break? And that's one problem. The other is that if you and I were to come into San Francisco Airport or JFK – we're going to be asked where we came from. I get asked all the time, what were you doing in Germany? Why did you go to Greece? And so in other words, people ask U.S. citizens questions to discriminate where they, what were they were doing. We don't do that from people from Mexico who come here illegally. And if I say to a passport official, I don't have a passport, then I have to go into a room and have to have it Xerox or something or I go back to where I flew out of. So the next problem is that we demand a higher level of compliance from U.S. citizens than we do from people who are here illegally. And that creates a general depression about the sanctity of the law from everybody. One of the trends that you point out in this piece is that the old sort of melting pot notion of immigration is sort of breaking down. And one of the criticisms that is sometimes lodged from people who are opposed to legal immigration is that that is an inevitability if you are essentially – if you're importing too many people from just one or just a few cultures within too short of a time frame. In other words, there's such an agglomeration that it's harder for them to assimilate into the broader society. Are, are you sympathetic to that argument? Yeah, I think from all the research that I've read uh, from think tanks and universities, it's clear there's about five criteria that allow assimilation 
integration, intermarriage at a rapid rate. And one is the number of people, the sheer number of people. Two is the conditions under which they arrive, illegally or legally. Three, um, the attitude of the host. Uh, do, you, do you try to have English immersion or do you have English as a second language classes? And then four, the type of people, where are they coming from? Are they coming as engineers from South Korea? Or are they coming from destitute people from Oaxaca, Mexico? It makes it makes a di- big difference. And then five, to what degree are they used politically? In other words, if you have an, hundreds of thousands of people in the so-called ethnic careerist industry, and they their careers are in affirmative action, they're in equal opportunity, then you want as many unassimilated people uh, as possible. And you don't want an Italian-American experience where people come from Sicily one time and then they break off and then they become assimilated. And today you don't know where, whether a Giuliani or Cuomo is going to be Republican or Democrat. And so we're doing everything deliberately, I think, so that we don't have assimilation rapidly. And it, it's very lucrative to hundreds of thousands of people. You you mentioned the attitude of the host there, Victor. What role does the American, at least elite American embrace of multiculturalism play in the lack of assimilation? Well, a good example, a metaphor is somebody like Jorge Ramos. Here's a person who felt that he was in danger for speaking out in his beloved Mexico. So he comes to the United States and then he becomes an advocate of illegal immigrants and attacks the United States for its supposedly illiberal attitude toward illegal immigrants, even though it's in the Mexican constitution that uh, the racial essence of Mexico should not be changed. He does, he spares them criticism but attacks his host and then becomes a veritable multimillionaire with his children in prep school then flagging everybody else and saying, you know, flogging everybody else and saying – You've got to do this and you've got to do that. But he, the elite never have the consequences of their own ideology affect them. So and I mentioned Mark Zuckerberg, but most of the people that I know who are advocates of open borders do not put their children where 50 percent of the students can't speak English in that in a course. They just don't do it. And what a, uh, Go ahead. Uh, well, I, I think that really your attitude about illegal immigration – reveals the class in which you belong and it's something that I think Trump has capitalized on so when Jeb Bush says it's an act of love I want to say what do you mean by that your children go to schools where there's illegal immigrants do your children deal with uh, a parent who says that uh, your child gave his child the wrong look so he wants to fight you do you go to the Walmart parking lot and somebody from Oaxaca Mexico is uh arguing with you and he doesn't speak Spanish or English? Um, I don't know. You go to Target where somebody has five EBT cards, then that's a whole world apart. So it's easy to say that every illegal immigrant is a dreamer that, that represents an act of love because, you know what, your, your influence or your money or your stature shield you from the consequences of all of that uh, utopian rhetoric. If Donald Trump has correctly identified or tapped into the uneasiness that people feel about this. Do you have a sense when you watch him and you listen to him that anything that he's saying is um, is responsive to the problem, that anything that Trump is, is pushing will actually get us to a place where we have a better handle on immigration policy? Well, it's hard to because he's so incoherent and so self-contradictory. This is a man that in 2008 – 
uh, excuse me, 2012, lectured Mitt Romney for being too hard on immigrants. And he had a lo- much less punitive uh, policy than Donald Trump. I, I think I do. I think I understand that a wall is necessary. Trump wants one. Hillary doesn't. He wants the law enforced. Hillary doesn't. Trump does. That's good. When he says that Mexico will pay for it, and I think he means that he's going to have trade sanctions, that's stupid. It's it's impossible. But you could make Mexico pay for it in the sense that we have 11 million illegal immigrants, at least from Mexico and Central America. They send to Central America and Mexico $80 billion dollars. We, all we would have to say is if you want to send that vast amount of capital, then you would have to show at your Western Union office proof of U.S. legal residence and proof that you're not on public assistance. And if you can't do that, we'll tax you 10% surcharge on the money you send. And that would be $8 billion. And in a year, you could pay for the wall. But Trump would never say anything like that. But he's on the right track. But of course, being Trump, he always tries to to, to just get into never-never land, then I don't know about what we do, what he wants to do about deportation. I think most people understand that the Democratic Party will never allow the word deportation. The Republican Party will never allow the word amnesty. But there is a, a compromise, and that is, say, of the 15 million, we know that a million of them have committed crimes. We know that as a fact. They've been released, charged, and released. So if you were to say anybody who's been arrested for a serious misdemeanor or felony, you're going to be summarily deported. Anybody who has no work record, you can't show a W-2 form. You've just been on public assistance. You're going to be deported. Anybody who came up here in the last 24 months just on the scent of amnesty, you're going to be deported. I think we would probably get down to about 8 or 9 million people who have followed the law, They've been here, say, for five years. They have a work history, and they're eligible to pay a fine, take a test, and apply for a green card, not amnesty, a green card. And we never really care what green holders do, green card holders do. I I know under the Simpson-Mazzoli Disastrous Act of 86, I think that the figures I've seen are about 60% of the people who could never applied for citizenship. They just became perpetual green card holders. Their children were born here as citizens, and then that was the end of it. One of the economic arguments that we hear all the time, especially in relation to communities like the one that you live in, Victor, that are heavily driven by agriculture, is that you need a steady supply of immigrant labor in order to essentially work in the fields. But there's a suggestion in your piece that we've sort of overstated the role that immigrant labor plays in agriculture. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I can. Uh, At one time in the 60s, agriculture accounted for 80 percent of the jobs that illegal immigrants held. Today, it's 20 percent. The great engine uh, for illegal immigrant labor is a triad of construction, the so-called hospitality industry and uh, manufacturing, processing, meat, pocket, meat plants, uh, things like that. But mostly it's hotels, restaurants, landscaping, uh, and construction. And the reason that is not because farmers don't want to use illegal immigrant labor. It's that most of these crops uh, are becoming mechanized and those that aren't are disappearing. For example, nectarines, uh, strawberries, table grapes – They've been they've they've witnessed ab- absolutely astronomical consumer price rises. Table grapes are up to four dollars a pound. In part, that's because the farmers don't want to put up with the labor problem anymore, uh, and they've 
planted almonds. Almonds have gone from 100,000 acres in California to over 1 million acres. And it's something that's entirely mechanized. So if you have 100 acres of raisins, for example, in 1970, you need 50 people to pick them over three weeks. Today, you either have mechanized them and half the raisin industry is mechanized or you pulled them out and planted almonds. And that's happening everywhere. So 20% of the, the labor is, is agricultural and yet we're still stuck in sort of a 60s mindset that we need all these people because of agriculture. Actually, we don't. We don't really need them. One of the big concerns that is raised by a lot of people where immigration is concerned is that in terms of both scope – and speed, you're dealing with sort of cultural change at a breakneck pace because of the immigrant population that is is potentially disruptive. And I, I want to get you to respond to something. This was written earlier this week by uh, Brian Kaplan, who's a professor at George Mason. I don't think it's characterizing him to call him an open borders advocate. I think he refers to himself that way. But this is his response to the argument about preser preserving culture. I'm quoting him here. He asks rhetorically, what about Americans' right to preserve their culture? I'm tempted to call it the nativist version of a safe space, but cultural preservation is far more totalitarian. A safe space is but an enclave, a small corner of the world where politically correct norms prevail. To preserve a culture, in contrast, requires a whole country to impose traditional norms on everyone, and this is crazy. You don't even have the right to force your culture on your adult children much less millions of strangers. How do you respond well, to that? Well, it's very ironic because I'll take one example. The latest studies, uh, a survey show that the highest levels of anti-Semitism are among Latino immigrants, partly because of South American attitudes toward inculcated by the Catholic Church. But I grew up with Mexican-American people. And I can tell you that anti-Semitism, this poll, the recent one that was quoted in the Washington Post, I think David Bernstein did it, 30% of Latinos um, said that they were anti-Semitic. They didn't trust Jews. Okay, fine. That's an immigrant idea. But because of multiculturalism, then that is no better or no worse than any other ideal. And your George Mason professor should get used to the idea that 40% of people in California who say that they're Latino are also going to – of that group is 30% are going to be anti-Semitic. And believe me, that's already translated into uh, clear evidence on CSU campuses. When I go to a CSU campus, uh, there's one constant besides shouting down speakers. Every single uh, booth to the degree that deals with the Mis Middle East is anti-Israel. If I want to get people angry at me at CSU Fresno, then I will speak on Israel because there's no tolerance. Part of that is, is the Latino community is absolutely unsympathetic, at least compared to other communities, except for the black community. And we don't even just explore the ideas of what is Hispanic culture vis-a-vis -vis women? What is Hispanic culture vis-a-vis -vis gay people? What is Hispanic culture vis-a-vis -vis blacks? Because most of the people who write as, as the author that you just quoted don't ever they're never they never go to Mexico they never around people from that culture, and so yeah okay fine we shouldn't impose our culture what is our culture it's ethnic tolerance it's tolerance for gays it's tolerance for minorities but if you believe that that's just I don't know one tomato or one lettuce in a salad bowl no better than or no worse than any other then he's going to be you know, certainly surprised very rapidly when he sees the things that are happening in California, which is becoming a very illiberal place in ways that people would not 
would think of it. I I have been walking all around the countryside around my farm lately, and uh, is it illiberal to have a dog fight and take a Queensland healer and stray dogs and then fight them with each other and then throw them out with a rope around their neck? Is it illiberal in a green state to throw baby carriages and diapers out? Because that's if anybody were to peruse who does that, they're largely people here illegally from Mexico. But if I don't want to judge that, then I'd say, okay, people in Mexico are just a little different. They have a different idea about trash and throwing it on the sides of the road. That's okay. Dog fighting is just a, an alternate paradigm. Who am I to impose my culture? And that, if we want to do that, we know where it leads, something like the Balkans or Rwanda or Iraq. But this is written by a libertarian apparently who has no – deep convictions about the exceptionalism of American culture. So in summary, is it fair to say – this will be the last question I ask you. Is it fair to say that if you're just given the choice between the two, that reducing the influence of multiculturalism is ultimately more important on this issue than reducing the absolute amount of immigration? I think it is, but unfortunately the two are linked. You won't be able mm. to uh, – if you won't be able to lessen the influence of multiculturalism fast enough to accommodate the accelerated rate of immigration. And so what I, what I guess what I'm saying is I really don't care what Americans look like. I don't care if there's 60 percent of Asians at UC Berkeley. As long as it's meritocratic, I don't care if people – California is all – uh, residing by people who are Oaxacan, as long as I know that according to an ethnically, racially blind uh, standard, they were deemed more likely to succeed in America or to be helpful to America than people from North Korea, uh, South Korea or Central Africa, for example. But that's not what's happening. And that's I find the entire illegal immigration deeply embedded in racism. Because when I talk to ethnic activists, and unfortunately I do a lot, uh, if I were to say if 3,000 Chinese were landing on Point Reyes every single day and they were coming into California and at a critical mass they wanted Chinese language uh, affirmative action, would you be opposed to that? All of my Hispanic friends are opposed to that. They would think that would be outrageous. And Why? And I think the answer is that they have reasons for illegal immigration beyond just uh, immigration. And you can really see it when Cubans start doing what people from Mexico are doing and come in across the border under special circumstances that make them immune from the law. Or when you see Chinese in L.A. doing it, Hispanic leaders don't like that at all. And uh, they don't like that because they have a chauvinistic agenda. And you can really see it in the nomenclature Raza, La Raza. National Council of La Raza is the largest open borders group in the United States. That term was revived in the 1960s from an idea of Franco and, and by the way, Mussolini on the Raza. The Raza Speciale it was a, a movement to make race the arbiter of who really was Italian. All right. That's the podcast for today. Join us next week for another installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. <laughs>